Well, we're in the book of Acts again this morning, chapter 16, as we continue um, our series through Acts. You know, there are a lot of people uh, this morning in the world who have no interest, uh, in, I guess you'd say church, the Bible, the gospel, um, things that uh, many of you, most of us here this morning, um, would hold very dear. And the reason for a lot of that many times is they look at the Bible, they look at church, and they look at even the good news of Jesus, and they don't see it as very applicable, very helpful to their life. They're living their life, they're building their families, they're pursuing their dreams, they're doing what they're doing, and they don't really see how this fits or how this is needed or helpful in their life. Uh, they simply don't get that part of it, and so they don't really even explore it any more deeply. And the truth is, nothing is more practical uh, in life than the gospel. Pen people tend to think many times that Christianity, you might have heard this phrase, is uh, so heavenly minded, it's no earthly good, right? And that's just not true. First off, our greatest need, we know as Christians, is to be reconciled to the God of heaven. If you have a creator and you've been created in his image and you have been separated from him and that image has been marred, then it would make sense if the storyline of the Bible is true and we believe and obviously know that it is, that the most important thing that can happen to a person is for them to be reconciled to the one that created them. And that happens through the gospel. And the gospel ultimately brings about the help in life that we are most deeply in need of. And as believers, we have a responsibility as those who have been reconciled to God to, to bring that help to others. And we're going to see this morning about this helpfulness of the gospel and how it offers the help we need most and how practical it really is. In Acts chapter 16, where we, leave, where we pick up from last week, and the end of Acts chapter 15 there after the Jerusalem Council, um, Paul and Barnabas, who had went on that first missionary journey together, um, have a disagreement, decide to go their separate ways. And it basically goes about uh, that Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark, someone who had abandoned them on one of their journeys, had left them early on one of their journeys. He wanted to take him with him on the new journey. Paul said, I don't think he's ready for that yet. I don't think that's a good idea. And they have a disagreement. And Barnabas, being the encourager, the quick one to give somebody the, the second chance, you might say, says, well, I'll take him and I'll go this way. And Paul says, well, I'll go get somebody else and I'll go the other way. And he recruits a guy named Silas, who likely, like Paul, was a Roman citizen, or was actually a Roman citizen and, and, and a Jew, uh, like the Apostle Paul. And they set out on this new journey. And Paul then stops in the beginning of chapter 16, and he meets in, in, on his journey a guy named Timothy. Um, we looked at uh, that passage back on Mother's Day and how Paul brings Timothy into the fold, uh, a believer, that someone who had likely been converted either on Paul's first trip through this area or in the process uh, between. And so now you've got a team that consists of, at the very least, we know Paul, uh, Silas, and Timothy. And then in the first few verses, first several verses of chapter 16, a new person is going to be added to that group, and that is actually Luke, who penned for us Acts as he starts using a first-person pronoun in chapter 16 for a while, uh, showing that he joined the mission. So you have Luke, you have Paul, you have, um, you have Silas, and you have Timothy on this mission team together, if you will, as they head out. So look with me in Acts chapter 16, starting uh, in verse 6. And it says, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So 
As they go about, they're actually forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. That sounds weird, right? Why would the Holy Spirit not want you to speak the word somewhere? That's that's what he empowered us to do. We don't really know why, uh, but for some reason, God in his sovereignty said, now's not the time for that. And he forbids it likely through some form of prophecy. Somehow he made it known to them that that wasn't the direction they were supposed to go. And it says, and when they had come up to Messiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So now the Holy Spirit prevents them um, from going to another place. And it says, you look at it, verse 9, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. See, Paul was someone who was both compelled and directed in his mission. He was compelled by the gospel to go, directed by the Holy Spirit as he went. So he had this desire to take the gospel places. He knew he was called. He knew he, he would say in Romans 1 that I, I, I'm indebted. I feel like this, I feel this debt that I need to take, this obligation to take the gospel to both Jew and Gentile. Paul understood as someone on on this side of faith in Christ that he owed the gospel to everyone on the other side of faith in Christ who had not heard the gospel. And so he felt compelled by the gospel to take the gospel and advance the gospel. But at the same time, he was someone who was led by the Holy Spirit and knew that he was to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And we see here in this passage the Holy Spirit preventing and the Holy Spirit forbidding and then the Holy Spirit calling him to go to one particular place and doing that through a vision. And, and I love the phrase. It says, it says, come help us, the Macedonian man in the vision. Come help us. And so what does Paul do? Now we would think come help us means we need some financial aid. We would think that it might need, uh, we, there's a crisis management that we need help with. When we think of help, we think in those, in those terms. But what does Paul do? It says he goes and he felt called. He knew that meant he was called by God to preach the gospel there. So when Paul thought of going to a place and helping them, he thought of taking the gospel to them first and foremost. Because nothing is more helpful than the gospel. Look at verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, now now he's in Philippi. Philippi is one of the provinces, one of the, one of the cities there in, in the region of, of, of Macedonia. And so the first place in Macedonia he gets to is Philippi. And it says on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So he's arrived in Macedonia, first city, Philippi, first person he meets, we see is Lydia. And so it's the Sabbath day. And normally on the Sabbath day when Paul would enter a city, he would go to the synagogue. Well, it required 10 Jewish men to constitute a synagogue at minimum. And so they obviously didn't have a synagogue in Philippi because they didn't have these 10 Jewish men. And so what do they have? They have a little place by the river where if you're a God seeker, if you're someone who worships God, a God fearer, that's where you would go And that's where you would worship. And it was largely probably constituted of women because we know they didn't even have at least 10 Jewish men there. And so one of these women that he meets out praying by the river is a lady named Lydia. She is pictured here as likely a very successful, wealthy businesswoman who is also religious. She comes across as someone who's got her life together when you consider the culture and the day in which she lives in especially. 
And Paul leads Lydia basically through what you might say is a Bible study and leads her to faith in Christ. And he has now helped his first person in Macedonia. And then verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl, Paul's second encounter, who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So now we meet a slave girl who's afflicted by a demon, a spirit, a demon. She's basically as opposite a picture of Lydia as you could paint. One has her life together. One's life is a mess. One is wealthy. One is a poor slave. One worships God. One is afflicted by a demon. Right? One has the freedom to the point that she apparently owns her own home, one large enough to invite this party of uh, this mission team, this, this party of people over to her home to stay for some days. One, on the other hand, is enslaved and, uh, and oppressed um, in her culture. But I love the honesty of the text, right? Why did Paul do this? It says he was greatly annoyed, right? <laughs> Imagine this girl following around, following the mission team around for days, just shouting this out loud. Well, it sounds like it might be helpful, right? It's like, but it wasn't helpful to have some demon-oppressed, uh, afflicted person uh, walking around. It was a distraction. It was a distraction. And many, actually, some commentators will tell you uh, that Most High God in her culture didn't refer to Yahweh. It may have very well referred to Zeus. And some would say it's better translated a way of salvation than the way of salvation. So in some ways, she might be muddying the waters. And people disagree over the exact translations, but the point is this. Paul did not want the gospel associated with demons <laughs> and with a demon-afflicted person. And when Paul commands the spirit to leave, it does so immediately. But there are some people we're going to find that don't like that. Verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone... They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering their jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So, these folks, they're in need of Paul's help us too. They just don't know it. They're enslaved to their greed. And it says they turned the, they actually turned the crowd and turned the city on Paul and Silas. And they find themselves attacked, stripped, beaten with rods, with many blows, it says, and then thrown or tossed into prison. So, Things are looking dire here for Paul and Silas. And in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he, threw his, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, 
Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took, the same, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So here we're introduced to a third person on Paul's journey, the Philippian jailer. Likely a retired Roman soldier. Not an easy case of a person uh, to witness to. And he throws them in prison after they're beaten. Doesn't give them medical care, and they certainly need it. They've been beaten with rods profusely. They're tossed into prison, put in these painful stocks. And, it's, and, and in this moment, Paul and Silas look like they're in need of help, right? Not the jailer. But we're going to see, as, we, as the story develops, we see that the jailer is in just as much need of help as the demon afflicted slave girl and it's Lydia by the riverside. Tim Keller says that in these three scenes you get a picture of three different types of people reached three different ways by the gospel. Showing how the gospel is ultimately for all types of people. And you do get that, right? He points out you have a religious person, Lydia. You have an oppressed person who's deprived justice, who at the same time is oppressed spiritually in the slave girl, and you have a very maybe more secular-minded, hard case of a person, skeptical of a person, in the Roman, the Philippian jailer. And one, as he points out, is reached through a Bible study. One is reached through a dramatic experience, and one is reached through seeing the Christian life actually embodied in front of them, and there's obviously a dramatic experience for him as well. But you also get a picture here as you see this unfold, a picture of how the gospel brings us the help we most need, no matter what circumstance we are in in life, no matter what your background or your friend's background, what people need most is the gospel and how it expresses itself in that way. And as Paul follows the spirits leading to Macedonia, going to help as the man in the vision requested, we get these three pictures of gospel help. So let me give them to you. First off, Christ or the gospel is what completes us. We learned this from Lydia. Lydia looks like someone with her life together, right? She's got it all together. She's successful. She's wealthy. She's religious. She has a moral compass, obviously, for her life. Very serious about her religion. In a town where there's not even enough godly men to constitute a synagogue, she's down by the river praying and seeking God. Her life looks balanced. Her life looks full. And as a seller of purple goods, as it refers to her, she was dealing in an expensive, lucrative, profitable product. So she would have likely have been well off. And she had come from Thyatira, obviously, to Philippi to, uh, to, to have this business. And, and the fact in her day that she owns a home as a woman and a home large enough to host a group like this shows that she was fairly well off. So she's successful and she's wealthy. And it would have been easy to look past Lydia's need due to her seeming togetherness look of her life. Her life on the outside looks full, but in fact, it's really very hollow. She obviously realized something was missing in her life as God showed it to her that it was Christ that was missing as Paul walked her through the message of Christ. And our lives can be full of success and wealth and spirituality, but as we know, if you do not have Christ, there is something critical that is missing to your life, and that is reconciliation with God. You could be like Lydia this morning. You're in a gathering of believers. You have some semblance of belief maybe. Things are going well in your life. You wouldn't say that you're not a person of faith. You would say you're a person of faith. But maybe God has yet to open your heart to understand the scriptures about Jesus. You know, 
Augustine wrote, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. That's what he wrote to God. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. It could be that we could restlessly fill our life with all sorts of things, even good things, in search of peace and security and identity and meaning that ultimately can only be found through being reconciled with God through Christ. Because the truth is, we're made for God, as we know. We're made to know God, and we're incomplete then. We're, we're not fully who God has made us to be until we are reconciled to our Creator. Things can be going well in our life, though. We can be successful. We can be financially prosperous and have financial security, and we can be religiously involved, and we can be very moral, upstanding people in the world's eyes. But these can all be idols that actually distract you from your ultimate need, which is Christ. That could have been the case for Lydia. The truth was, with Lydia, she had just not heard about Christ yet. And that's the case for some people. They have just never really heard a clear presentation of the gospel. You know, there's this thing in the world that we call common grace. Common grace. Family, friends, prosperity, success, the fact that you're good at your job, if you're good at your job, if you're a creative person, the fact that you're a creative person, if you're a likable person, the fact that you're a likable person, the fact that you have food on the table, the fact that you have money in the bank account, the fact that you have your health, the fact that good things happen to you, the fact that you might have been as lost as a ball in high weeds and your spouse might have been just as lost and you found each other and have a happy marriage, it might last 50 years and you might have came to Christ years later. That's what we call common grace. It rains on the just and the unjust. It's the sense of which God is a good God and we live in his world and he allows good things to have and blesses us with good things whether we know Christ or not. Common grace. But you have to be careful that you don't settle for common grace and fall short of saving grace. Especially in a culture where common grace abounds. I think about the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, he runs up to Jesus, if you know the story, He's wealthy, he's young, he's got you know, the world by a string, and he runs up to Jesus looking for eternal life. But he leaves without it because his heart was so captivated by the common grace in his life of wealth. He left Jesus, the Bible says, sad because he had money, a lot of money, had great wealth. He left sad and he left rich because his riches couldn't bring him what he needed most. But his riches had gripped his heart and choked out any desire for Jesus. See, the most important thing about life is missing from our life until God opens our heart, as he did Lydia's, to understand the gospel and to bring the gospel to bear on our life. Now, if you're a believer, there's a believer this morning, you probably know some Lydia's. You, many times, don't share Christ with them because you forget that they even need him. It's easy to think about the person that, that's life just seems like it's falling apart and to think, oh, I see brokenness. I can, I can bear witness here. I can talk about Christ here. But when somebody's life looks more together than yours, even if you know they don't know Christ, that's hard sometimes. They have more money, more perceived success, maybe more friends. They might even be more likable. Who are you to tell them what's most important in life? They seem like they've got it together. It's like if I was to walk out onto a golf course and there was a professional golfer there hitting golf balls and I don't play those kind of golf courses so that would never happen but if I was to walk out there and there was a professional golfer and he's hitting golf balls you know what I would never do I would never walk up and say let me give you a few tips you know. but if I walk up onto a golf course and the guy's not breathing 
well, we don't even, I'm not talking to him about God. He, he might can hit 65, shoot 65, but if he can't breathe, he, he, he's in trouble, right? And we tend to sometimes get intimidated by the fact that, man, their life is together. Maybe it's more together than mine. They're better at this than me. They're better. I don't, from the outside, they might not even feel their need for Christ. But truthfully, if, if they're not breathing the air of the gospel on a daily basis, man, they are walking dead people. And what we have is what they need most. And the truth is, we don't bear, bring us we don't, we don't bear our witness on them. We're not witnessing to us. We witness to Christ. We don't, we don't preach Josh. We don't preach you. We preach Jesus. We bring Jesus to them. And it's only Christ that can bring wholeness to their life and what they're missing most. Secondly, Christ, or the gospel of Christ, frees us. He frees us. And we see that in the picture of this slave girl. Many believe this young girl, like Lydia, became one of the first members of the Philippian church and that this was her conversion. Now, the text doesn't explicitly say that, nor does it anywhere else in the Bible. But it would be a usual pattern that we would see even from Jesus' ministry that those who are delivered in this way tended to become quick followers of Christ. So it would not be a stretch to say that. You know, one person even pointed out the fact of how Jesus taught in these situations when a demon leaves. If something doesn't come fill the house, so to speak, he tends to go get some buddies and come back. And it, the second situation is usually worse than the first. But here in this situation, they can't make money off this poor girl anymore. She can no longer predict things. She can no longer do her little fortune telling uh, tricks anymore. Why? Because the demon's gone and something has, a, someone rather, maybe has filled the house. And Jesus, and only Jesus, has the power to free people from spiritual bondage. Whether that's demonic bondage or sin bondage or idolatry bondage, Jesus, and only Jesus, is the one that can free people from bondage and set captives free. Colossians 1.13, let me read a couple of scriptures to you. Colossians 1.13, he, Jesus, Paul says, has delivered us. If you're a believer this morning, this is true of you. He has delivered you. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It goes on in chapter 2, verse 15 to say of Colossians, he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So if you're a Christian today, if you know Christ personally, if you've repented and trusted Christ, he has already delivered you from the domain of darkness. And on the cross, he has disarmed and humiliated all the demonic forces and authorities. And if you do not know Christ today, because of what Christ has done, you can experience that kind of freedom. But here's the thing. Many people are just as enslaved to their sin as this girl was oppressed by a spirit. And in some cultures and in some churches, man, there's a demon for everything, right? To the point that you can name, every, you can name, a, you can name a, a demon after every sin to the point that there's no sin anymore, just demons. It just becomes devil-made-me-do-it theology. But some folks are so enslaved to their sin. We all are, apart from Christ. We're just as much apart from Christ as in bondage to our sin as this girl was to this oppressed by this spirit. Case in point, look at her oppressors. She's set free from who knows how long of demonic oppression. And what do they do? They get ticked because they can't make money off of her anymore. They are enslaved to greed and power to the point that they can't celebrate the deliverance of this young, most commentators believe, teenage girl who's been set free. You know, as we know, Tuesday is the 4th, Independence Day, uh, 
when history marks, right, the birth of our na- as a free nation, and we celebrate that, and every year, right, millions of Americans are going, thousands of people are going to gather around the lake over here on Baldwin Park. I'll be one of them, Lord willing. Thousands of people will gather around, watch fireworks, right? You'll grill hot dogs and hamburgers or, bar- you know, smoke barbecue. Do whatever you do, right? Hang out at the pool, go to the beach, hang out with friends, do whatever you do to celebrate our freedom. And I'm grateful for that freedom. And we're a freedom-loving people. And we do not need to forget, though, that as a people that live in a democracy and a republic and a free nation, that we live in a nation of spiritual captives. We live in a nation that sets off fireworks every year to celebrate freedom, full of spiritual enslaved people. Millions of Americans are still captive to the domain of darkness, enslaved to their sin nature. And freedom from that only comes through Jesus. Romans 6, 6, the Apostle Paul writes, We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If you know Christ today, that means you've been set free from sin. And when Christ died, you died. When Christ rose, you rose. And you've been given newness of life. You have genuine freedom in Christ from sin that has been purchased by Christ. If you're a believer today, that is a rock-solid promise of God for you. And if you're not a believer today, that shows us the truth that you can be set free from whatever sin enslaves you. Some would say, you know, I've tried Christianity. I've tried Jesus. But I'm not free of doing the blank. And maybe that's the problem sometimes. Because Jesus isn't a test market drug to try. He is a person to surrender to. There may very well be folks in the room today and folks we know whose marriages are a wreck this morning and there's no demon to blame, just sin. There are folks enslaved to lust and pornography destroying marriages. There are folks enslaved to greed and it's destroying marriages and destroying their lives. Their debt's out of control. They've stressed out their family. They're not content with their life because they're consumed by lust. Just enslaved by sin. And listen, you can't go drinking from the poisonous well of pornography, for instance, and then wonder why What is supposed to be the clean well of your marriage seems unappealing or is erect to you. You've poisoned it. And the freedom that deep down when people want free from something like that, whether it's greed or lust or you name it, that only comes through faith in Jesus. Now here's the thing. Some people will say, well, I got free from that But now I'm enslaved to this, right? And a lot of times what happens is people don't really get set free from sin. They simply move to a different room in the house of sin. They're a slave to the same master. The master's just got a new name. The master used to be lust. Now the master's greed. The master used to be greed. Now the master's pride. And all they're doing is they're moving from room to room to room to room in the same house. And sometimes it's a big stinking house because the devil will build you as big a one as you want. And they'll go from the upstairs to the downstairs to the basement. And they'll think, well, I just, they just move. I'm set free from this, this. And they're just, 
They're just a slave living in the same house. And when the gospel comes to bear on your life, Jesus doesn't move you to a new room. He gets you a new house. Freedom. That's freedom. Free from sin. Not perfect. Not without filth. But free. And you can be free. We can be free when we repent of our sin and believe in Christ. And if you're a Christian, don't believe the lie the devil wants to tell you that is that you're not really free. And then you begin to live like someone who's not free, even though you're not. The third thing we see from the Philippian jailer is how the gospel, how Christ rescues us. You know, things look bad for Paul and Silas after they're thrown in prison. They're badly beaten. Their feet are put in these stocks to, I mean, it was literally designed to be painful. They were placed in just the right place. F.F. Bruce points this out in his commentary. That they, were, they, they, they did it in just the right way to just make it extremely uncomfortable and painful. On top of that, he's been beaten with rods. On top of that, he's being handled by, by what was likely a former Roman soldier, and they're not exactly trained to be you know, hospitable. They're basically trained to be professional torturers. So things are looking pretty dark for Paul and Silas. And then when you look there in chapter 16, Paul and Silas appear to be the ones in danger and in need of rescue. And if you're them, you're thinking, what's about to happen to me? Am I going to be killed like James? Killed like Stephen? What's going to happen to me? But really, as the story unfolds, we see it was actually the jailer who was in the most danger. He was the one in need of rescue. We see in this story, at one point, he's actually contemplating suicide. Why is that? Well, he would have been likely, most likely, he would have been killed for all the prisoners being set free. That was gen- many times the punishment. And so if, especially all of them go free, he's a dead man anyway. And rather than bear that humiliation and bear that punishment, he was just going to do it himself. But the truth was he needed rescue from something greater than the Roman authorities and the judgment that he was afraid he was going to have to face. So he comes running up the, after the earthquake as they pray and as they're singing and the earthquake happens and they're all set free. He And he sees that they're all still behind when Paul says, hey, nobody's left, we're all here. The question, million-dollar question, what must I do to be saved, right? I mean, it's easy from there. If you got people running up at work or in your neighborhood, what must I do to be saved? You know, it doesn't generally happen this way. (laughs) These are the easy ones, right? I think I can handle that. Most important question on earth. But you only ask that question if you know you're in danger. You only ask that question if you know you're in peril. You only ask that question if you know something's wrong and that everything's at stake. If we're out swimming and I'm standing in three feet of water and I start and I say, what must I do to be saved? Help me, rescue me. You would think I'm playing some sort of joke, most likely. But if we're in 30 foot of ocean water, you might think differently. And the truth is, I'm not going to cry for help unless I know I'm in danger. Paul knew. Paul understood the plight of the jailer. But now the jailer understands his plight. And the answer they give is still the answer we give today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Very simple explanation of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. You and your household. Because the offer of salvation is for all. And God loves. He glories. He and. and and winning whole households to Christ. So Lydia the slave girl, Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer all look very different 
But they all needed the same thing, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And the story ends with this jailer rejoicing with his household. He's celebrating. Why? Because he's been rescued. He no longer has to fear death and ultimate judgment. He's been rescued by Christ. And notice the change in him. One minute, he throws them in prison. The next minute, he's cleaning their wounds. Something he should have already done, by the way, but he didn't care anything about that. I mean, these are people that needed medical attention. He gave them none, but now he's cleaning their wounds. Why? Before, he didn't care about them. Now, he cares about them. Before, he's distraught to the point of fear and suicide. Now, he's joyous, and he's celebrating with his family and his home. Why? The gospel has come to his home. Rescue has happened. He's got a reason to celebrate. He has been changed from the inside out. And God used Paul and Silas from a prison cell to reach a hard-hearted man. And two key things that are very obvious that, that it seems like God used in this situation. The first one was their song. They showed their faith to this Philippian jailer through their song and then through their second one, their concern. They were singing in their suffering. Singing and praying to God, it says. Now think about it. They were in severe pain. They have been beaten with rods. They have been thrown into prison and placed in painful stocks, and they don't even know if they're going to be alive when the sun comes up. And yet they're singing. They're singing. The emotional turmoil, the fear that would be stirring up, not knowing and think about this. Why are they there? Paul's got a lot of time a lot of time to think about this. Because sometime before this, he saw a vision of a Macedonian man say, come help us. And Paul knew that the Holy Spirit was calling him to go to Macedonia. He is sitting in prison with his life on the line with a bloody back and hurting legs and feet fighting for his life. Why? Because God told him to go. A lot of opportunity for Bitterness, regret, anger at God. But the truth is, when you've experienced the ultimate rescue that comes from the ultimate rescue from ultimate suffering and ultimate pain in hell, from God's wrath, then you can sing and you can pray in all the prison cells of life. You can sing and you can pray and, and you can worship God in difficult circumstances when you've been delivered from ultimate suffering and ultimate pain. The song and the prayers of the one who suffers well is an ultimate powerful witness in a world that's hurting and in pain. See, we bear witness to the power of Christ when we use money different than the world does, when we use power different than the world does, when we suffer different than the world does. God uses this to bear witness to the gospel. Luke says that the prisoners were listening. He says the jailer was asleep. I like to think maybe Paul sung him to sleep. Later we see, as the story develops, when the prison cells break, break open, the prisoners stay behind. Paul says, none of us have left. We're all here. Because the world watches and the world listens and the world is captivated when we're both the same as them and different than them. The same in the sense is we're human and we've, we've got the same experiences that are different in the sense of we're empowered by Christ. And there was something unique about Paul. Who knows, maybe he led the whole prison cell to Christ. We're not, no, we don't know. But for some reason, they stayed behind. 
And this staying behind is the second thing and the main thing, I believe, that God used other than the fact that this jail cell rock was Paul's concern for this jailer. The impact it had, notice, when Paul and everyone stayed behind. He comes running up to them. What must I do to be saved? They had risked their freedom. They had risked their own rescue from prison because they knew the jailer's life was on the line. Not a single prisoner left. And this brings the jailer running to the Apostle Paul. What must I do to be saved? John Maxwell says, old quote from John Maxwell, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. You know, so you have to show your faith before sometimes you earn the right to share your faith. And Paul and Cyrus had experienced, Silas had experienced the greatest rescue, and so they were able to risk their freedom for someone else so that, so that they could experience that great rescue. I love, Tim Keller says it this way, another quote, they didn't need freedom at the expense of his death because they had experienced freedom at the expense of another's death. That's gospel change. In Paul's life, in Silas's life, being brought to bear and brought to witness on the jailer's life. And when you've experienced the power of the gospel and the rescue of Christ from sin, from death, from hell, you are able to love others and serve others in a more sacrificial way than you would normally be able to do. Sometimes beyond human comprehension. Sometimes beyond what you would even think. You have no need to use others. You've been set free from that. You have no need to fear others. You've been set free from that. And you can no longer overlook others because you've been set free from that. Because gospel rescue turns us into gospel rescuers and people that want to see others come to know Christ. And the rescued have a song and a concern for others that can't be taken away no matter the circumstances. And this enables us to leverage our circumstances, whatever they may be, for the sake of the gospel. Let me ask you, have you ever found yourself in a proverbial prison? Maybe not a literal one, or maybe a literal one, but maybe not. A hard place in life, a painful place in life, a difficult place in life. And maybe you even found your place there and all you were doing, it wasn't because you did something wrong. You were just trying to obey God and follow God and then you find yourself unemployed or sick, or hurting, abandoned, rejected. And we need to be reminded time to time as we read through Acts, we see this, that there's no circumstance that Christ can't use us in. There are some people that you can only reach from certain particular prisons. Let me tell you, the jailer wasn't at the Riverside at the prayer meeting. You can reach Lydia at the prayer meeting. The Philippian jailer, he's in the jail. And there are people sometimes in your life, when you go through difficult, hard places in your life, think about it. Who is in my life right now only because of this circumstance? Who's in my life right now only because of this situation? Who has God placed in my life only through this horrible thing maybe that's happened? Could it be that that's the mission field at that particular place in time? Could it, believe that, could it be that God wants to use you in the midst of your circumstances to bring and bear witness to the gospel in the midst of that on them? That's what happens here. This doesn't mean we don't speak out when we're done wrong. What does Paul do? We didn't read it, but right after he gets out, he goes, hey, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. You beat me and threw me in jail. You treated me like I'm some terrorist or something, and I've got rights. And they're like, what, what, what? They start freaking out. Well, I want you to just leave town quietly, right? Paul didn't like not stand up for his rights, 
but he didn't let the fact that he was violated in this way to prevent him from advancing his mission. Even in a moment where those rights were being taken away. See, the Apostle Paul and Silas were called and went to Macedonia to help. But the help they brought, as, we're beginning, as we see as they begin this journey, is gospel help. People were finding what they needed most was Christ. People were being set free from bondage and darkness in Christ. People were being rescued from their spiritual plight through faith in Christ. And the gospel of Jesus offers us the help we need most. Freedom from our sin and from our bondage. Rescue from death and hell. Meaning and purpose in life and understanding what we need most. So maybe today, if you if you don't know Christ, maybe today you're a little like Lydia. Maybe you identify with a slave girl. Maybe you identify with the Philippian jailer. Maybe it's none of them. The point is, no matter what sphere of life you're in, no matter what phase of life you're in, no matter your background, no matter your future, no matter your present, the gospel still comes to bear. And the answer is still the same. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And the fact that this Jewish Rabbi from 2,000 years ago lived a sinless life and died on the cross for your sins and rose again still matters today. He is still our only hope of heaven. And the greatest things we need in life, the, the biggest questions we have, have are only found at his feet and are only found as we repent of our sin and trust Christ. Maybe today there are people in your life like these three people. And as one who has been rescued from ultimate suffering, as one who has been set free from bondage, as one who has found what you were looking for in Christ, God can use you to minister to and to reach those people because the gospel is a vast practical help to what we need most in life. Let's pray.